please stand for the reading of God's word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Sinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, Chirolamadar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Ammon, Simber, king of Zeobim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cheolamadar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheolamadar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karadim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavath Karahim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mispah, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazam, Hazaran Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Ammah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Cherolamadar, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Aphilio, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitmus pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in the Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the Oak of Memory, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anar. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hebro, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and women and the people. Yeah, that, that was no easy task, right? I love the commitment there. It, he did, you know, if I was pronouncing it wrong, just, just go for it, right? That's the way to do it, you know? No one else in the room knows how to pronounce it either. <clears throat> I don't think, I don't think in all my years of going to church I've ever heard a sermon over this passage. But we're going we're gonna to give it a shot today. It's a little confusing, but hopefully I'll make it a little bit more simple uh, for you. All those names kind of jumble our brains when we're trying to understand what it's saying. So hopefully we'll, we'll make it a little bit more uh, easier to understand today. But let me pray, and then we'll uh, jump into this passage. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and, and uh, these aren't just stories, they're real events in history, and they're events that matter because you thought it worthwhile to record them in your word. So Lord, 
I pray that we would uh, have our eyes and our hearts open to what your word wants to speak to us today as we look at this passage. And I pray that your spirit would work uh, through your word um, and, and, and encourage us rightly uh, where we need to be encouraged and challenge us rightly where we need to be challenged. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, there is a big difference between those who expect victory and those who expect defeat. Am I right? And perhaps you've competed maybe on a sports team that has had a great track record of winning over a number of seasons. And you know the confidence that that can bring, even if you weren't a part of that team beforehand. Setbacks, slow starts to games, they feel more like speed bumps than they do defeats when you have a track record of victory. Or perhaps you've played on a team that's prone to losing. And you know that that same kind of setback, that same kind of slow start to a game can feel like insurmountable odds. How will we ever come back from this? We weren't supposed to win this game anyways, and now we're down by 14 or whatever. You start feeling your teammates kind of shutting it down, calling it quits for the game. Maybe you're not athletic. That analogy doesn't work for you. Maybe you never played on a sports team. That's fine. You might recognize the same kind of thing in your workplace. You work for a company that has a good track record, that is growing, that is doing things, right? And it starts to sort of be this environment that invites more wins. Versus if you're on a dying, in a dying company that, that uh, has made a, 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 is prone to making mistakes, and now you're per- paralyzed, right? Any decision you make, you're, you're, just, you're worried that it's going to be that last bad mistake that's going to put the company under, underneath, right? It might result in people being laid off or whatever. You see, that, this kind of confidence I'm talking about, or the lack of it, it's certainly not everything, right? A team has to have the pieces to be able to win, but it's also not nothing. Most Christians will at least verbally assent to our victory in Christ. Yeah, the Bible says that somewhere, I'm sure. I've heard that. Yeah, we, we have victory in Christ. And we understand that Christ is going to come back, and in eternity, we win. But for some reason, our promised victory then doesn't translate into much confidence for victory now at times. Well, if you've ever experienced that in your Christian life or in the church. Now, we may be obedient, and that's good, and we might do what's right, even though We don't expect victory, and there's something to that, don't get me wrong, but we lack faith that it will actually result in what's good and right. We think, well, I'm going to do what's good and right to be obedient, even though it's not going to result in what's good or right, because we kind of always lose. We often assume that our team, that is Church, Christians, are going to lose in this present moment. We're going to go into spiritual conversations. We're going to go into spiritual battles expecting a loss instead of expecting a victory. But this morning, 
want to tell you this story, explain this story a little bit, and I want to give you a little bit of a, a halftime speech, if you will. Some of you guys have been following Christ for a while with varying degrees of success, and it's halftime, let's say. And here's your halftime speech. Second half might turn out different than the first. I want us to consider this story, realizing that our faith is in the same God that Abram's faith was in, and our faith is in the same promises that Abram's faith is in. But do we share his confidence? In fact, we have more reason to have confidence because whereas Abram was looking forward to events in Christ that have not happened, we have the privilege of looking back knowing that Christ already has won those victories in his first coming. So here's the punchline. In Christ... We have victory over the world. Church, do you realize that? In Christ, we have victory over the world. The world does not have victory over the church. The church has victory over the world because of what Christ has done. And we will be victorious in the future, and we can be victorious now, even in the midst of the turmoil of the world. Let's start with what happened to Abram. And then I want to share with you three arenas, three victory promises that we have in Christ. Like I said, it's easy to get confused in this list of names. And so I want to try to make it a little bit more clear. First, it's helpful for you to understand a little bit of how the ancient world worked. In the ancient world, there were what were called city-states. And so a city would have a king and that king would rule over that city and maybe the region just around it because in that time with the technology that they didn't have, it would be very difficult for one king to rule over a large mass of land. They just couldn't move and communicate fast enough to hold that much area. So if a one king got really, really powerful, rather than saying, well, this whole area, this whole country is mine, what that king would do would, would be to go into that city and siege, take, you know, uh, do battle with it, and basically get that king of that city to become his vassal. So that king is still ruling over his city, but that king is paying tribute to the more powerful king, and that king's territory is really underneath the more powerful king's territory. Do you understand what I mean? And so by extension, the more powerful king ruled in this city even though he let that king stay there and rule. And in, and in turn, the powerful king says, okay, I won't destroy you, and I'll protect you, and you will pay me tribute. You will supply me with money, you will supply me with materials, you will supply me with whatever I need. So that's kind of how it, how it worked. Now in verses 1 through 3 here, we see that there are four kings who are allied together. And they come from Mesopotamia, which is to the north and east of where Abram is. So if you're familiar with your Middle Eastern geography, Abram and the five kings are just west 
yes, just west of the Jordan River. You get the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. They are just west of that, in between there and um, the Mediterranean, right? And these kings are from the north and east. And they have put all of these kings in this territory under them as vassals. Okay? And so these five kings have been underneath these four. Well, particularly, it looks like Cheddar Lamor is kind of the big head honcho of the whole group. And for 12 years, these five kings have been vassals to him. But in the 13th year, they rebel. They say, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. We're done with that. Now, you can imagine if uh, a more powerful king is at your doorstep, at the city walls, and is threatening to kill all of your women and children and take everything, you'd go, what do you, what, what, how much do you want? Anything. Yeah, we'll be your vassal. But after 12 months or 12 years, you start to, and that, and that king's all the way up in Mesopotamia, you're going, why are we paying them money again? And so you rebel. I don't want to do that. So as was often the case, the more powerful king has to rally the troops and go back through the territory and remind everyone why they pay him tribute. You know, a little muscle, a little show of force, if you will. And so that's what we see happening. These four kings, they come down along the eastern side of the Jordan River, the opposite side from where Abram is, the opposite side from where the five kings are, and they just are running roughshod over these different rebelled, rebelling nations. And I want you to catch something here because you, you, it's easy to miss this. But in verses 5 through 7, as it's talking about these people that they're redefeating, the names that we don't understand, you need to understand that elsewhere in the Bible, when it talks about these people, it talks about them as being giants, as being enormous people that are strong. And so these kings that are coming, King, King Cheddar, whatever you want to say his name is, he is defeating people who are giants, and just running through them as he's coming back up and around the Dead Sea. And so the original audience would read this and go, oh my goodness, this is a powerful army. This is an incredibly powerful army. So, what happens next? They come up, and they're going to attack these five kings, and in verses 8 through 12, the five kings decide, you know what, let's gather up our forces and let's go out into the valley by the Dead Sea and let's take the fight to these guys. Let's not play defense. Let's not wait for them to, to bang down our, our front door. Let's go to them and let's take the fight to them. Well, that strategy doesn't work very well and they lose. And it says that there's these bitumen pits all over in the valley. You remember in the, the, the story of the Tower of Babel, they used bitumen to put the bricks together, to stick them together. It's this, like tar pits, basically. And it says that as they lose and they run off and they flee, that some people fall into these pits. Now, it probably doesn't mean that they, like, oh, I'm running, you 
you know, slip and fall. Actually, the word uh, most likely means that they were lowered into these pits. So what's happening is as they're running away from these kings, they're trying to hide somewhere. And so they're either hiding down in these pits or it says they're hiding in the hills. But what does that leave their women and children and their cities and all their possessions? Completely undefended. And so these four kings walk into Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities, and they take all their stuff. Like, okay, you can hide out in the pits and in the hills. We'll take your junk. Thank you very much. And Lot, Abram's nephew, it says, happens to be dwelling in Sodom. Now you remember. Remember with me. Earlier it said that Lot chose to dwell near Sodom. You remember last week? They're trying to decide between the land. And Abram's like, hey, take your pick. And, and, and Lot's like, hey, this, this valley over here looks really, really nice. And it happens to be right by Sodom and Gomorrah where tons and tons of really, really wicked people live. And it says that he li- you know, moved in near them. But here in this passage, he lives in Sodom. So at some point, he has moved, shifted from being near Sodom to in Sodom. And that matters. That matters because what we're going to see or the implication, rather, is that if he had not done that, he wouldn't have been captured, and this wouldn't have become Abram's problem to deal with. And I want you to catch that because, friends, when we move in with wickedness, that has con- consequences. And over the next few chapters, what we're going to see is a contrast between Abram And Lot, if we zoom out a little bit bigger picture, we'll see in chapters 14 here and chapter 19 that the fact that Lot is living in Sodom creates a few problems, right? It creates some problems here. It creates even more problems in chapter 19. And in between, what we see is Abram covenanting with the holy God by comparison. And so, side note, what I want to ask you is, are you moving into the Sodoms in your world, or are you moving relationally close to God? It matters. Back to the story. What's Abram going to do? Verse 13, someone gets away from all this action, comes to Abram, tells him, you know, where, he, he, where he's dwelling there in, in these, amongst these oaks with this Amorite Mamre and his two brothers, just, just uh, this, is, this is just for your own confidence. When I first read this, I thought Mamre was a place. Turns out it's a person. So when you're reading the Bible and you get confused on something, don't worry, I'm with you. Grace on you. Okay, but it's this guy, this Amorite guy and his two brothers. And yet apparently uh, Abram has this temporary alliance where he's living among them. But, but I want you to know that it's a different word than the word that's used for Lot living in Sodom. He's just living among them. He's kind of like at Mamre's Airbnb or whatever. And there's some sort of alliance there. And so this is what's interesting. We don't ever, this is I think the only time where we see Abram doing anything militaristic. And so, so it's interesting to me. He gathers 318 of his trained fighters, guys that have been trained in his household, born and raised to do this. 
And apparently the Amorites help him. We'll see in verse 24 next week that the Amorites help him in this battle. And they plan to attack at night. And it turns out that they defeat these four kings. Now, this should be shocking to us. These kings who just waylaid all of these giants and Abram and some guys he's trained in his house come in at night and completely defeat them. Send them running. That is supposed to leave us thinking, there's no way. How in the world could that happen? You're, you're smart, Josie. Someone must teach you well. <laughs> uh, see, next week it's going to become really clear that the blessings and success come from God according to his promises to Abram. But we're not quite there yet. That's next week. You see, Abram is God's chosen person, and he's the one who has faith in the Lord and is assured victory according to God's promises. Those promises find their fulfillment in Christ. So if we are in Christ, this means something for us. It means something for us. It's not just a cute or interesting story. To put it more succinctly for us today, believers are assured victory over the world, over the world according to Christ. We're assured victory over the world according to Christ. Abram doesn't hesitate to face these four kings who have just been defeating everyone. There's no doubt in him that rescuing his nephew is the right thing to do, and he does it. And this will come out clear again next week when we see what Melchizedek, how he clearly attributes this victory to the God Most High. Now, like I said, pretty much every Christian will agree that in the end, Jesus wins. And thank God for that, right? That's huge. But today's battles lead us to believe that until that last trumpet sounds, we are basically just going to lose over and over and over again. And we just got to keep kind of taking our lumps. And then finally, God's going to win in the end. We assume that when temptation comes, we will sin. We assume that when our kids hit the world, they'll stop coming to church. We assume that our country is gonna, uh, will only ever move away from Christ. We assume that our neighbor or our friend is never going to repent and believe. We assume our marriage is always going to be messed up. We assume we are going to lose. Far too often, we as Christians assume the opposite of victory. It isn't that we're overestimating the obstacles or that we're overestimating the enemies that we face. In fact, I would say that most often we actually still underestimate them. That's not what I'm saying. Those obstacles are significant. What we underestimate is that we've got a bigger God and he's won a bigger victory. We undervalue the victory we have in Christ. While we aren't taking up arms against people as Abram did, the New Testament does use this kind of warfare language for how God works in his and through his people in the world. And so I want to share with you three victories that we have in Christ. The victory of Christ in the world for us, the victory of Christ in us in the world, and the victory of Christ through us 
into the world. Let me say that again. We have victory because Christ has came into the world and won victory for us. We have victory, the victory of Christ in us as we are in the world, and then there is victory in Christ through us into the world. Let me share briefly some of what the New Testament says about those three things. Christ in the world for us. Christ, the chosen one of God, the faithful one, comes into the world with its warring powers and delivers us. He is the strong man who enters Satan's house, binds him up, and takes what he wants. We were like lots wrapped up with those who were perishing, those who are trying to exert their freedom, when in reality, they're actually slaves to the prince of this world, Satan. We were like Lot, we moved into, we are in Sodom, we were taken away, and Christ came and delivered us. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us how Christ delivers his own brothers and sisters. It starts with this declaration of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then it tells us that since Christ rose from the dead, we know that all who are in Christ through faith will also rise. Verses 54 and 55 say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And verse 57 concludes saying, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world for us, church, to win us victory over sin and death and over Satan on the cross. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is all just awesome. Christ in us, in the world. Christ in us, in the world. That's the second victory we have. Once Christ has won this victory, saving us out of our own sin and delivering us into his own kingdom, that now is the truest reality of our life. Do you get that? That once Christ came into this world, delivered us, into his kingdom, that his kingdom is now the truest reality in your life, Christian. That's the thing that matters. See, confidence that is misguided isn't much help, right? But confidence that is founded in something real makes a big difference. Man, I tell you what, when you've got the MVP on your team, whoo, you walk into anything, you're like, oh, we're going to win. Get him the ball. In Christ, we have the power to win. We aren't merely saved from the penalty of sin, but from the power of it as well. Christ gives us victory over the sins and pressures of this world that are all around us. We don't have to keep on sinning, Christian. Romans 6.14 tells us that in Christ, sin has no dominion over us. None. 
Even though we have such assurance of victory in Christ, that doesn't mean it will be easy, though. It doesn't mean that everything will go smoothly. Abram is doing just fine dwelling in the land until the report comes that his nephew has been taken. In a sinful world, we will deal with the oppressive schemes of Satan. As God works in our life, as the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes more and more about what's going on in our own hearts, there will be times when you will get a report that part of your life has been taken captive. That you've allowed part of your life to move into Sodom, if you will. And sometimes that report can feel crushing. I can't believe I let that happen. I can't believe I'm sinning. I can't believe that. I can't believe it. But the report isn't the problem, friends. Lot was already taken away long before someone came and told Abram. Once the report came to Abram, the question was, are you courageous enough to do what needs to be done? Do you believe that you have victory in Christ and he is empowering you to do what needs to be done? Are we courageous enough to do what needs to be done to kill sin and pursue Christ in our lives? Or will we be selfish cowards? 2 Corinthians 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, of, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Are you courageous enough to do that? Ephesians 6 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Do you have the courage to wrestle? Do you have the courage to stand firm? Because in Christ you have won the victory. He hasn't disguised that this is a real battle. Abram's life and the life of the trained men that he was responsible for were at real risk when they went to save Lot. And yet, he did it. When the temptation to compromise comes, when it seems easier to just become vassals to a wicked king, will we remember that the king of kings is on our side? We can do it. Not because you're awesome, but because he's awesome last arena of victory, Christ. We have victory in Christ through us into the world. Jesus said that in this world, we'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First John 4, 5 says that if we are in Christ, we too have overcome the world through him. 
You see, that's the wonderful thing about being a brother and a sister of Jesus Christ, right? Because all of his victories are our victories. Through the Spirit at work in us, God uses us, his church, to bear witness to, to the gospel. And through the gospel, he transforms people. Hebrews 2, 5 and 8 says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, that is Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him, that's Jesus, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, ye left nothing outside of his control. Do you get that? Nothing is outside of Christ's control. Nothing, it says. At present, right now, right now, not in the future, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And yet, friends, everything has been put there. See, Jesus really is on the throne. He really is over every power of this world. Even if we don't see that completely manifested, that is the true reality. Our ability to see that reality doesn't make it any more or less real. I can imagine when those kings rolled into town and they took Lot and Abram knew what was going on. He probably thought, oh my goodness, what now? It would have been easy to think that. God, I, I, thought, I thought everything was in subjection under you and what are we facing right now? Our perspective does not determine reality. We have reason to be confident of victory when we step out into this world because we serve that king whom God has exalted with all glory and honor and put everything under his feet. He allows us the opportunity to be witness to his victory to his kingship, and through that witness, he promises to spread his kingdom. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2. It says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I want you to understand that this phrase is describing the victory parade of a conquering king, of a warrior king. That is Christ's triumphal procession. He has gone in, he has fought the battle, he has won, and we get to celebrate because we're on the winning side. And through us, it says, through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Do you get it? But that knowledge of Christ's victory to those who are being saved is the fragrance and aroma of life. And to those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death because they are not on the winning team. We are Christians. True victory in Christ comes via the Spirit of God through the people of God as they bear witness to Christ's victory in the gospel. That's the only truth that sets people free. And as people are set free, 
that spiritual victory manifests itself in very tangible ways in our neighborhoods and in our churches and in our cities and in our culture. Because of Christ, we love God. Because of Christ, we love people. And we know the best thing in the world is for those people to order themselves according to that God's word. But the most loving thing for them is to live obediently to God, even as we don't get everything perfect because we still have sin in our own hearts, right? But we remember, we must remember, that while the gospel will smell like life to those who are being saved, it will smell like death to those who are rejecting it and are perishing. And that is a sad reality, but it's one we must remember because We cannot be surprised that in the world today, there are people who think that God's life-giving commands are imprisoning. That there are people who believe that God's life-giving commands are death, and they are not. And if we speak the truth, even as we hope for their salvation, they will at times think us unkind, and angry, and hateful. Jesus himself said in John 8, if you were Abram's, Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abram, Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Wherever Christ is breaking people free from Satan's kingdom, we, say, we see that if Satan can't take them back, He will seek to destroy them. Listen, Christian. Listen, church. Even though Satan's forces look ominous, we know Christ is victorious. Satan can put on a good show, but Christ wins the victory. And in Christ, we have victory over the world. So let me ask you this. Do you trust God's promises? Do you have courage to face the conflict? Are you willing to fight for what's right? Let's pray.